Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. The doctor, are you aware that she never had a heart attack and she never had those events? <laughs> and the look on his face was just, it was perfect. And um, it was one of those few times where we as lawyers say, oh, I better shut up now and just sit down. <laughs> right, right. So Please rise, court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. Uh, this is your host, Steve Lowry and Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Um, I'm, I'm excited to talk about this case today. I don't want to get ahead of us, but it's another, it's another case in, in the set of things that terrify me. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, that, I, I think that's sort of the uh, overwhelming theme of, of a lot of trials <laughs> is that usually it's stuff you never, ever want to happen to you, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but yes, it, it, it certainly can make things scary. But uh, as these lawyers did in this case, develop the theme of how you can do things safely and in the long run make things a lot safer in the medical field. Um, so I want to go ahead and introduce our two guests uh, who are two fantastic trial lawyers from uh, Arizona. Uh, we have David Winner and Brian Snyder. Uh, David and Brian are partners at the law firm of Snyder and Winner in, uh, with offices in Tucson and Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, guys, how are you doing? Good. How are you doing? We are good. We are very good. And we're excited to talk about this case. And we'll, we'll get into it very specifically. But um, I, I see that the county that you tried it in was Pima County. Is that am I pronouncing that right? Yes, that's correct. Uh, it, my, my, it, that, that's where Tucson is. And my guess is, is that's a fairly conservative venue. It's actually, all of Arizona is conservative, but it's actually not quite as bad as up in where we are in Phoenix in Maricopa County. Um, okay. It is one of the few liberal or potentially liberal bastions of hope in Arizona. Right, right. Actually, right. I think Sorry. that county, went, I think the county actually went for Clinton during 2016. Wow, okay, election, okay. So. Well, okay. Well, still, uh, she still lost the state, but, but that was yes. one you know, bright spot. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, we'll we'll get into the case uh, a lot more, but I want to introduce our uh, listeners to both of you. And David, we'll start with you. So David uh, Winner is a founding partner uh, at Snyder and Winner. Um, David has uh, has researched, written, and um, lectured all over the country on the issues of jury research, jury bias, and decision making. Uh, he's been named in the best lawyers in America from two thousand two or from two thousand until the present. Uh, has been named a super lawyer from 2007 to the present and um, has been named as a diplomat, diplomate of trial advocacy by the National College of Trial Advocacy and, uh, and was uh, uh, one of the developers of AAJ's Overcoming Juror Bias Program and Descriptive and Jury Bias Model uh, and is a member of Phi Kappa Phi Honor Society and has been trying cases uh, for a long time, very successfully uh, in Arizona and uh, all over the country. And so we're very, very happy to have, have you, David, on, on the program. And, uh, and your partner you. is, and, and, and Brian uh, Snyder is a partner at Snyder and Winter. And Brian is, uh, has been named as a top 40 under 40 lawyer by the National Trial Attorneys, been named as a rising star by Super Lawyers, uh, has been named a top attorney by Phoenix Magazine, and also spends a lot of time um, doing charitable work and is the chairman of the board for the Arizona, Arizona Foundation for Suicide Prevention, 
uh, and then uh, also spends a lot of time uh, working with mothers against drunk driving. So it's, uh, it's great to have both of you on. Thank you for having us. Yeah. So, so the case that we're talking about is a case called, uh, it was, uh, your client was Esmeralda Tripp, and it, there was a number of defendants. I'll say the main one seemed to be the University of Arizona College of Medicine and the University Medical Center Corporation. Um, and essentially, it involved a case where Esmeralda uh, was taking Coumadin, and I think it, it, it seemed like she was taking Coumadin because she had um, a history of atrial fibrillation um, and that um, she had uh, uh, some, I guess, not pre-existing conditions, but some, some uh, complicating factors in that she was, uh, I think, would be characterized as mentally disabled. Uh, she had a seizure disorder, had, had um, atrial fibrillation, had some other health issues. Uh, but because of her Coumadin, uh, at times, her uh, blood levels would get high, and, uh, and, and specifically her INR, which essentially talks about how quickly your blood clots would uh, get high, which means that your blood is thinner and, and is a higher risk for uh, bleeding and possibly bleeding out. Uh, and because of that, she would from time to time go to the hospital uh, in order to get her blood levels lowered. Um, and in this specific case, there was a drug called, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess up the pronunciation, but I'm going to try it, is uh, Profilnine, uh, which is essentially a blood clotting uh, uh, medicine for hemophiliacs and can be used in extreme emergency situations where there's uh, uh, emergency bleeding going on or emergency surgery uh, that is happening, neither of which were happening with Esmeralda. Uh, but it was given to her and caused her to have a, um, to essentially clot, have a heart attack uh, and suffer uh, severe brain uh, damage, uh, which left her in a, what's uh, essentially a vegetative state or a minimally conscious state. Uh, and, a, and it was a permanent brain injury, a devastating injury for her. Um, and so the case was about whether or not uh, the doctors who treated her, one of which was a resident uh, with only about two months of experience, and then the attending physician uh, should have given her this drug uh, without um, having cause to, uh, and then whether or not that drug is what caused uh, her to have the, these um, have this heart attack and uh, severe brain damage. Um, and so that's just a very uh, a, a very general. Um, Overview, uh, the verdict in the case was $15 million uh, for Esmeralda and uh, 80% of the fault was uh, put on the defendants. Uh, and we'll get into why 20% of the fault was determined to be uh, because of Miss Tripp. Um, but uh, that's just a very basic overview of the case, guys. And I guess I, I want to talk about, uh, you know, David, it's uh, exciting for us to be able to talk with you, especially since you've done so much work on jury uh, research and juror biases. I, I guess I'm wondering how do you approach a case like this? Uh, you know, and we can get into some of the defenses of the case and some of the things that might have been perceived as weaknesses of the case. Um, but how do you uh, use those principles in preparing for a trial in a case like this? So uh, first of all, we uh, we got involved in the case after all the depositions were taken and the case had been worked up. 
And uh, one of the lawyers in the in the other firm, the referring firm, had retired, and so the 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 lawyer, as a colleague, asked us to uh, help him try the case. So uh, we we weren't involved necessarily in the uh, discovery phase of, of the case, choosing the experts and the like. But uh, one of the things I, I did do in the case, uh, um, I did focus group the case. Uh, and uh, we were involved in that part, and we got involved uh, so about six months before, four to five, four or five months. And the first thing we did was we focus grouped the case, and and the way we focus grouped the the case was to do a concept focus group to try to fi- uh, to figure out intuitively how jurors were thinking about this case, and were there certain issues, uh, certain facts that we could use to our advantage. Uh, and emphasizing those facts in tell, telling the story. We did that uh, a number a number of times. And so when I say concept focus group, you understand, you know, there's many different types of focus groups. This is a more of a conversation uh, between, you know, the, 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 the facilitator and the lawyers and, uh, and the participants. And you kind of slowly talk about the facts and see where the the narrative intuitively leads uh, as 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 part of the development of the focus group. And then at the end, they uh, once they have all the information, they fill out a questionnaire, and then they deliberate. Um, and we found we found some pretty pretty interesting things. And uh, so we tried to to use those aspects of the case in in developing the narrative. One of the things that that was of concern to me as as the lawyer and also doing the 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 jury consulting was that that th- this woman had a had a very complicated medical history, and one of the one one thing that she reported in her history was that she had a heart, had a, had had a heart attack at age twenty nine, and so it seemed to me that if a person has a heart attack at age twenty nine, it seems likely that she could have a heart attack you know, at 43, was she 43 at the time? Yeah. And so that seems like it would follow, you know, if somebody has a heart attack at at 29, that's so unusual. That fact is, you know, I think would be so overweighted that people would think it's likely that uh, she's just going to have a heart attack no matter what. And so we started to look look into that, uh, the facts. And um, what we found is that this woman, for uh, whatever reason, we could not find any substantiation for much of what she reported to the doctors. And so that became important as the, as the trial went on, because when the case was litigated, it was litigated in, in, in such a way that the, that it was taken as a given that this woman had a very complicated medical history, and and when she went into the to the emergency department for you know in the subject uh, instance uh, she was given she was treated and she had this horrible you know heart attack which led to her her damages or injuries, and so the you know the concern was you know was all of that stuff that they took as a history true. And what we found is that actually we couldn't substantiate any of it. You know, I mean, they gave a, she gave a history of the heart attack and stroke and all kinds of things. And none of it turned out to, to be 
True. And so one of the, the reasons that they treated her the way they did was because, in fact, they were concerned about this prior history. And so that that was a big issue in terms of causation. And so um, and, and we found out in the focus groups that, in fact, that that was a big issue. The, the other thing is that the other thing we found out in the focus group, and Brian could talk about this, is that is that we had a policy a written policy that was very, very clear, and it's, which is so unusual in medical malpractice cases. This policy says you give this, this drug in two instances, and, and otherwise you don't. And so, you know, she didn't fall within those two instances. They tried to, you know, to, to expand it and say, well, we were concerned about this, concerned about that, but in fact, they didn't comply with the policy. I think that was very, very important for the focus group. But to be honest with you, you know, um, the, uh, the the other side saw the case and and uh, they thought that it was a really winnable case. The defense thought it was a very winnable case. So I think they were surprised by the result. What, what happened? What Kevin Keenan uh, was the other attorney who brought us in, and he and his partner Greg Osborne had worked up the case. And like David said, they had obtained the hospital policy through discovery. Um, that said the only two times you can give Profil 9 is if the patient is having severe life-threatening bleeding or if the patient is bleeding and needs emergency surgery. And those are the only two times, and those didn't apply. So what we did um, was when David and I got the file, we reconstructed the entire case based on that policy, and we rebuilt everything from the ground up. That's how David found that this medical history that was reported wasn't even accurate. Um, everyone, like you said, everyone was kind of taking it for granted that it was true. But when we recreated everything, but to create our themes and our triggers and everything else for trial, uh, that's when we realized it wasn't true. And so we built the entire narrative around that policy. So jurors, you know, when they think about these, go ahead. I was just going to say, when jurors think about these cases, they, they try to resolve this in the easiest way possible. There was really no literature out there that, that said that, that Profil-9 causes heart attack, you know, uh, as a result of a blood clot. There, there really wasn't any. And, but there was all kinds of literature that says that Profil-9 is prothrombotic. And, and we do know that she did have a heart attack according to the, the ER doc that treated her uh, that night. And we know that he gave her a drug to bust up a clot, you know, TPA. Uh, and we know that she got better once he gave that drug. Yvonne, what does every successful law firm need? Really great lawyers like me. Re that is exactly right. Really great lawyers like Yvonne. <laughs> uh, they also need cases, right? Right. And uh, what's the way we get cases? I think I know where you're going with this, and I'm going to say our website. <laughs> our website is a big one, and the best website firm out there is Digital Law Marketing. Yvonne, tell our listeners what Digital Law Marketing does. Well, they can help you with things like search engine optimization, pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, content marketing strategies, web design and development, Reputation management, which sounds very mysterious. I, I definitely need some reputation management. I, I, I'd like to find out exactly what that does. We need to look into that one a bit more. 
Uh, and they also do local search. And I'm sure if you call Mike and Stephanie over at Digital All Marketing, they will tell you what local search means and they'll tell you what all of these things do and how it can help build your law firm and get you cases. Call Mike and Stephanie or look them up at their website, digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. So we know she had a heart attack, but so now the jurors had two choices. Is it a result of this drug where there's no literature that says it causes a heart attack, but, but it does cause blood clots? Or is this something that just happened because of the stress of the event? Because we have a 29-year-old woman who had a heart attack you know, uh, years earlier. A 43-year-old woman had a heart attack at age 29. And so, to, you know, to me, the easier solution would have been, well, this is going to happen and it's likely happened as a result of her history. Or, so can we do something about that history? And fortunately, we're able to do something about the history, but it, but it was a kind of a risky proposition. For whatever reason, we don't know why she gave this inaccurate history, uh, but it, what happened is she gave it and it kept getting passed on from one provider to another. In fact, we couldn't even find any evidence that she actually needed to be on, on the uh, Coumadin. Uh, in fact, there were records that said she didn't need to be on the Coumadin. There was really no evidence that she was she had atrial fibrillation, it's, but she just kept getting passed on from one person to another. And so, I mean, that was a big causation issue for for us. And and but and, and think about that because all the defense experts had based their their opinions on the fact that all of this medical history was true, all of it. And so when we were able to cross-examine them at trial, we, could, we had the opportunity to confront them with the fact that none of that actually was factual. And so they were basing their opinions on, on facts that weren't correct. And so I think that was very helpful. And it, you know, in, in some respects, that, that happened because you know, a fresh set of eyes, and it's not like we were you know, genius in any way, it's that a fresh set of eyes came in and looked at this case and saw that maybe questioning some of this stuff and from the stuff from the focus groups, you know, that we were able to put together. And so I think that was that was kind of helpful, uh, you know, just coming into the case, looking at it, you know, fresh and, uh, and, and evaluating it. And I should say that the guy that we tried the case with is, a, you know, is a great trial lawyer, you know, and, you know, jurors just, you know, love him. And so uh, he's had a lot of success. But I, I will tell you, you know, just as a sideline, that the, that it's it's very very difficult to win a malpractice case here in Arizona. I mean, I, I would say ninety percent plus end up in defense verdicts. Now, that's not to say that they don't settle cases because they do all the time. But the cases that do proceed to trial, you know, uh, almost invariably end up in a defense verdict. So. Yeah, that uh, leads me to a couple of points, because one of the things that I noticed uh, is that the uh, standard that your, your burden of proof in the case it was uh, not preponderance of the evidence like we're used to in Georgia. And I imagine, you know, many parts of the country are used to, but instead was a clear and convincing standard, uh, you know, which right. is a higher which is a higher burden of proof. So that obviously makes uh, the case tougher right from the beginning there. I did want to point out, and, and as you mentioned, Kevin Keenan uh, tried the case with you and he gave the closing. And I, I thought some of the things he did in closing were really, uh, really good. But one of the things that he alluded to in the closing 
that Brian, I think you did with a number of witnesses is you just sort of took this policy of the hospital of when you should give um, Profilnine and, you know, and asked them, you know, did she meet either of those two factors to every witness and every single, at least it looked like from the way the closing was given that every single witness said, no, she didn't meet either of those factors. Right. So uh, first with the clear and convincing Arizona, it is preponderance for everything except court reform has passed a few years ago that now it's clear and convincing if the case comes through the emergency room and this happened in the okay. ER. So we had to meet it. And so we, we tried to weave that into all of our arguments, an opening each witness that it's clear, it's convincing, even though you don't really have to do that. We wanted to pound that into their heads throughout the entire trial. So at closing, they're not hearing about it for the first time. Um, what we decided to do, David and I are both very big on messaging, and David's obviously done a lot of work on it um, over the decades. But what we did was, I, my opening was done using an iPad with on the screen. Um, and I am a big proponent of, of trying to differentiate uh, key information so the jurors aren't just seeing the same type of information over and over again. So. We did everything, exhibits and everything was all electronic. But what we did was we took the easel, uh, the good old fashioned easel and a big marker. And we wrote with the very first witness, did Esmeralda Tripp have serious life-threatening or life-threatening bleeding? And then again, did she need emergency surgery? And every single witness was asked about it. And when every single witness said no to each, we wrote the person's name on the easel. So now that the jurors are seeing a different medium of, of information and it's separate from everything that's electronic that's been going on the whole trial. And so during closing, Kevin was able to use those two pieces of paper to show the jury in a different way. Every single witness has said this woman did not satisfy the criteria of the policy. Um, I think that was really effective. And what we also did we made a strategic decision to put the policy up on the big screen with every single witness. It was exhibit number one, and we put it up there, even if we weren't asking the witness about it. We had it up there, zoomed in to those two items. So they could not possibly forget the only two times profiline can be given. Um, and so we made a conscious decision to do that. And I think it ended up paying off because the jurors got it. I mean, it was a complicated case and they got it. Yeah, they I didn't get it, but I, I oh, go ahead. I, I was just going to mention that, that at least uh, it sounded like that one of the defenses was, is that she was showing some pain that looked like she might have appendicitis or might need a, an emergency appendectomy. Yeah. G, yeah. True. So a GI bleed. Yeah, she had some question of whether she had, there, there was some, the history of bleeding uh, that was given, and they were concerned about her having a GI bleed. They were also concerned about her having a bleed in her head. And so, um, you know, they, they were concerned about that. And that was one of the ways they justified giving her the drug because her, she had such a high INR uh, and her blood was so thin, if you will, that uh, they were also concerned about this history of seizure, which I don't know if was actually accurate. They were concerned that if she had a seizure, she could hit her head and then have a catastrophic bleed. 
You know, stuff like that works in medical malpractice cases. Jurors are, you know, looking for an easy answer to excuse a doctor's conduct. You know, that's the kind of thing that they they might uh, might actually, uh, you know, believe and and you know adopt as as an excuse for you know why the doctors did the right thing. So the other thing in the case is that you know the judge allowed a treating doctor, the treating surgeon, to testify in this case that it was appropriate to give this drug. This treating doctor, what was his name? Remember? Dr. Uh, Reed. So this guy, Dr. Um, uh, what was his first name? Was Peter? It Peter, Peter Reed, is that what is it? Anyway, this guy was a, it was no longer at the U of A. He was a, a very famous surgeon uh, who treated Gabby, uh, was it Gabby Giffords uh, right. when she was, when she was shot and everybody knew this guy. I mean, he, you know, he was, uh, you know, he, you know, he operated, you know, on aircraft carriers. You know, he was, you know, at the White House with Obama all the time. And this guy was just a very, very famous guy. And he comes in and the judge let him testify that uh, that it was appropriate to give this 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 drug Profil 9. And uh, that that was pretty difficult because we didn't know, you know, you know, how the jurors were going to see that he was a treating doctor. That was kind of tough. So they had that evidence on their side, even though generally speaking, you know, he, you know, he wasn't an expert, so he should, probably shouldn't have been allowed to give that testimony. But the judge, for whatever reason, decided to allow it to happen. And that, that I thought was really problematic. So they, they did have evidence, you know, that suggested that it, it was really appropriate. But, you know, I, I still think that in my mind that, that what, I mean, the two things that won the case is that policy and the fact that the defense experts based their decisions on the fact that they based their opinions on facts that were not supported in the record. And they, they did that because nobody bothered to look to see if any of that information was actually accurate. And so when you know, the hematologist comes and he's testifying, well, she needed all this because look at all this bad stuff that she had in her history. In fact, she didn't, she didn't have any of that history. The same thing when Brian was, you know, cross-examining the ER doc, uh, the expert, the plaintiff, the defense expert. And so he had to back off all, all, a lot of his opinions because they were based on, on the wrong facts. It was, I, I think it was a turning point in the case. Um, I mean, I'd like to think that we had him hooked from the beginning of the opening right. statement, but um, I think we all know that's not, unfortunately, how it usually works. But um, I think one of the turning points in the case was uh, their ER expert was on the stand. He's a good witness. He's a good doctor. He testifies a lot. And he did a good job on their direct. And then I was cross-examining him. And I don't even remember what the question was, but he answered something that made me realize Holy crap, this guy doesn't know that she didn't have a heart attack when she was 29. She didn't right. have these problems. And so I said, well, doctor, let's hypothetically. So the jury knows this already. Obviously, they've been hearing about it. So I said, doctor, hypothetically, if Esmeralda Tripp did not have a heart attack when she was 29, and if she didn't have these prior clotting events, then you would agree that more likely than not, it was the Profil 9 that caused her clots and her stroke and her heart attack in this case. And he said, well, yeah, I would agree with that. I said, doctor, are you aware that she never had a heart attack and she never had those events? <laughs> and the look on his face 
was just, it was perfect. And um, it was one of those few times where we as lawyers say, oh, I better shut up now and just sit down. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and that yeah, was yeah. the end of that. <laughs> right. Well, we also, I, I was just say we also had the luxury of having all these MRIs that, that followed the, the, you know, the, uh, the event uh, when she was in the hospital and her, uh, her arteries or carotids uh, were, you know, completely, were completely clean. Uh, they didn't have any, uh, uh, any plaque at all. And so the likelihood that she had this, you know, vascular problem uh, was, was pretty remote. Um, causing a heart attack early. Anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no. I, well, I just wanted to say it's funny uh, what you said about opening because I, y'all sent us the transcripts and reading the opening, I thought it was extremely effective in in making a complicated um, medical situation actually seem really simple. Um, I think the way you frame things with, with the policy and everything else by the time, now, of course, I'm <laughs> going to be plaintiff's oriented, doing what we do. But by the time you got uh, it, that the opening discussed um, what some of the defenses would be and, and the complicated sort of medical history, I was, I was kind of already on board because I thought it was really effective in sort of um, focusing things on the issues that really mattered, on the policy that really mattered, and on the medical situation that had actually presented itself that day. Um, but I'm curious, you meant um, in the opening, it was mentioned a couple times um, the things, concepts like Coumadin, it sounded like that must have been discussed during jury selection. Um, and I was wondering a little bit about what you all did in jury selection to start framing the issues. Was there anything you were looking for out, outside of the obvious? So David, um, since he's a nationally recognized I'll call him an expert, even though I'm sure he doesn't like hearing that. And uh, jury selection and, and decision making. So Kevin is the one who did the actual voir dire, and uh, he did a great job with it. And that allowed David to kind of sit back and and absorb the information. But um, we had gone through beforehand and said, all right, these are the areas we need to focus on. We assume most people would never have ever ever heard of Profile Nine, um, had no interaction with it, but a lot of people have experience with Coumadin or they know people. And we saw from the focus group that that's usually you don't want people with too much experience with the issues, but in this case, it could be a benefit because people knew how hard it can be to keep your blood levels in the correct range on Coumadin. And one of the defense arguments against Esmeralda was that, hey, she put herself in this position by not controlling her INR level. Well, she did not control her INR level, but what's not fair about that is a lot of people have a hard time on Coumadin. So we knew that that was going to be something that could help. Um, the other issue that we really had to worry about was that Tucson's not a very big city. I mean, it's not small, but it's not big. And the U of A is one of the biggest employer down there and everyone goes there for healthcare. And so the concern was, how is that going to play? Uh, are they going to want to hold their hometown hospital responsible for this? And, you know, the, the doctor, you know, she was, so, you know, there are a couple of things that we had also a theming in the, that we had in our favor. Um, but the doctors, they, they made good, they made good impressions. Uh, you know, I mean, she, this one, one girl was just out of residency. The one doc, the resident uh, woman, she was just out of residency. So that was kind of a, you know, something that I think jurors would take note of. 
and and but a lot of their treatment took place near the time near the end of their shift and so they wound up leaving you know shortly after midnight and so you know after they gave this medicine and turned their uh, care over to the the doctor coming on and it left him with with the problem but what the doctor in this case decided made a decision to give the medicine before she had the results from the surgeon this Peter Reed this you know world renowned guy that she wasn't a surgical candidate. And so one of the reasons they give this drug is you have to have emergency surgery. And most of the time, appendicitis is not emergent. You know, you can wait till the next morning. Uh, you know, it's, it's not something you got to do right away. But so, so that, that was one excuse they had to say, well, we're going to give this drug because she, she might have to go for emergent, um, emergent appendectomy surgery. So, she, decided, she made the decision that to give this drug, I think while the surgeons were in there finishing their, uh, their evaluation. And so when the, the surgeons made their decision, it turns out that in fact, the, that they said she doesn't have uh, appendicitis. There was some question about the, the, the reading of the, of the MRI, uh, CT scan, or I guess CT scan, the abdominal CT scan. And there was, there was some question whether there was fat stranding that might be related to uh, a potential uh, problem, you know, in the belly. And, and so as it turns out, it was, that was read by a resident, but then, you know, shortly thereafter was overread by the, the attending, which said, no, no, there's really no evidence of uh, any, any surgical abdomen. And so, you know, but, you know, they didn't even seem to wait, want to wait for that information. So, you know, the, the, you know, the issue is they in a hurry to leave, you know, the ER that night. I'm sure they've been working a long time, you know, and so, you know, the old thing, you know, uh, Mandel, you know, in his case framing book talks about the, you know, the case frame of speed kills. And, and so in this case, that, you know, that frame seemed to really fit, you know, why didn't they just wait until this world renowned surgeon, uh, uh, made his decision that in fact, uh, she didn't have a surgical abdomen. So, so what we wanted to find out in Vordir, which we learned in the focus groups is one, what people think about interaction between residents and attendings, um, get them talking about that because they, again, I'm not sure most people know that the attending is responsible for the resident, even if he's not there. Um, and two, what people think about appendectomies, because one juror in Vardir said, oh, that's an emergency surgery. And we're, we're sitting there going, wait, no, if you think that's an emergency surgery, we're screwed. So <laughs> right. thankfully, there are, there are other jurors who said, wait, that's not an emergency. I, my dad waited a day and a half until his surgery was done. And so we got them talking about that. Um, but we we were able to flesh out a lot of those potential problematic areas and what could be good for us from the focus groups. Yeah, what, one of the things we'll that say, I, I noticed. Just that... add... <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. I, I wanted to add one thing for people who are listening to this. So when on this clear and convincing evidence issue, this is just to add parenthetically, that there is research by this woman, Edie Green, uh, as a psychologist, 
in Colorado that suggests that jurors basically decide these cases. You know, is you know, is is this right or is this wrong? You know, is the you know, is there liabilities or not liability? And they don't have any 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 way to measure this burden of proof, and they and they're going to apply their own burden of proof. And she did a study uh, on that, whether where she you know. Uh, asked basically determined whether jurors could make a distinction between clear and convincing evidence uh, and more likely than not the preponderance standard. And if that's the only standard they have, then there's no reference point. So they don't have any way to deal with it. The problem comes in is if there's a second uh, burden of proof in the case where the jurors are having to apply two different burdens of proof. And then that that becomes a much harder task. So just for your, your visitors out there. Yeah. No, I agree. And I, I thought the way that it was explained, I, um, you know, it, it didn't seem like clear and convincing was anything unusual. And I, and I agree with you. I think that most jurors, you know, who've never sat in a, a trial before, you know, when they, if they're going to know what they feel is right or wrong, uh, you know, then they'll think that that's clear and convincing. So, um, but, but, um, one of the things I wanted to point out that, uh, to your point about that speed kills or that they were moving fast. And I, I thought it played in uh, to your themes in this case was the fact that the, the doctors seemingly never looked at, or at least said they never looked at her medical history uh, when they were, uh, you know, taking care of her. And then just this, this idea that, you know, you give this drug that's known to be, uh, you know, a uh, risky drug, you know, say that at least, and then the doctor leaves like right after uh, she gives the drug uh, and, and doesn't even, uh, you know, f finish her notes until three days later. And then, you know, just going with what you guys said about the fact that, you know, th this medical history had been put into her file and had been kept there for seemingly years. I mean, that all sort of plays into this. Uh, I, I think the idea now with medical malpractice cases is that it's so... Uh, compartmentalized that um, that doctors, you know, don't really spend the time, you know, looking at the whole patient or talking with each other. And so things get missed. And I think that's uh, becoming clear when you talk to juries now. Yeah, what David and I did when, when we came in, um, like I said, first thing David did was he just went through the records and found that aha moment of a lot of this is not correct. And then what we did was sat down and we tried to figure out, okay, how can we, how can we create a compelling narrative here that mentions everything that you just discussed, because I think that is all very important. Um, this young resident two or uh, two months out of medical school couldn't get in to the medical record to see Esmeralda's prior records. She had been at the hospital eight times before for this exact issue, a high, high INR. And every single time they just gave her vitamin K or fresh frozen plasma and she went home. Um, this time they didn't do that. And so one of the narratives that we were pushing was that they didn't do it because she didn't look. And why didn't she look? Because she testified at her deposition that she couldn't remember her login information to get into the records. So we, David and I came up with this uh, kind of a diverging timeline about every other time. This is what happened when Esmeralda came into the hospital with this exact issue. They looked at her chart, they see what she would get, they gave her the vitamin K or fresh frozen plasma and sent her home and she was fine. This time, the resident couldn't get into the chart because she didn't remember her password, didn't ask for help from the attending, jumped to this medication that should never have been given, 
and she, Esmeralda ends up in a vegetative state. So we were able to intertwine these different narratives into a kind of a compelling story about why this should never have happened in the first place. So the, the, other, the other thing is that the, it, it, it really fits in with, with for whose benefit did she give the Profile 9, did the resident administer the Profile 9? It was for her benefit because, you know, it was a, a quicker uh, response. It was quicker treatment than to give this other, uh, uh, this other uh, treatment choice, which would have taken much longer. But there really was no hurry. The only, the only hurry was is that the shift was ending. So it seemed that she was willing to take that risk. You know, the patient ex took the risk for the resident's benefit of being able to go home, you know, uh, when she, she was supposed to. Now, you know, that may be harsh, but in terms of the, you know, the, the, the equities there, that's in fact, you know, what happened. I should say that uh, just so we're, we're talking, the lawyer that worked this case up was Kevin's partner. He's the guy that retired. It was Greg Osborne. And he really did a great job at pinning everybody down in deposition. He did a great job at pinning the experts down and and getting the defense experts and getting their uh, um, you know getting their their testimony so way to escape. So when they came to court with these these fixed opinions, you know it was hard for them then to say, well, gee, I you know uh, I didn't you know I didn't know that. Um, and so that, that was very helpful. So the case was really worked up nicely. Just I just want to put that since those people are not here to add that in. Right. So uh, I have to ask because you mentioned this in your opening and we've talked about this on a previous episode. In Arizona, the jury can ask questions and I'm curious what questions they asked, if, if you remember. <clears throat> don't remember the specific questions. They did ask a decent amount. Um, they were taking notes. They were taking a lot of notes. Um, they did ask questions of several experts. Um, nothing that was groundbreaking, but it, it at least showed that they were listening and they were trying to understand these issues. We made a very conscious decision to simplify this case. We didn't use any complicated words, any complicated uh, concepts. We didn't call it an INR. We called it a blood level. We didn't want there to be any confusion about what was going on. Um, and so I, we hope that helped uh, ease some of the questions, but they did ask questions throughout um, and we were able to get most of them answered. And most of them, I don't remember, do you remember, I don't remember there ever being a question. I was like, oh no, <laughs> this right. isn't good. They're, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're thinking, um, I, um, it, it, in, along the lines of simplifying the case, one thing I wanted to point out is in the uh, closing, and um, uh, after the defense had sort of gone through all of the things that they thought, uh, you know, had were a cause or why this was a complicated issue or why the doctor shouldn't be held uh, liable, um, Kevin Keenan got up and said, this is as simple as ABC, a bad choice. And I thought that was just a sort of great way to sort of bring it home and, and, um, and to uh, simplify it, and I'm just wondering, is that something you all came up with through the um, through focus groups, or was that sort of on the spur? Or where where did that come in? I I, I stole that from Lisa Blue. So <laughs> okay, <laughs> good. It's always good to steal, but at least you're giving credit. <laughs> so Lisa, so Lisa, so Lisa told me that. So that's where I got that from. Yeah, Kevin did I, a good I, job in the closing of, of weaving in. Um, 
analogies and metaphors and just other concepts. And David uh, did a lot of work with it. Kevin did a really good job delivering it and coming up with some on his own also. Um, I forget, did he give the fighter jet? No, I don't remember. Uh, but he did a good job. He, he diffused their arguments and, and tied it all up nicely. Yeah, there yeah, was a, a pilot checklist comparison right. in the beginning that uh, I liked. Right. Well, yeah, that played yeah. in really well because the policy was not a checklist, but it could very easily be a checklist. Does this person have serious or life-threatening bleeding? Yes or no. Does this person need emergency surgery? Yes or no. And it doesn't have that yes or no, but it, it, it's implied in there. This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day-in-the-life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. You know, and, and another thing that he, I thought he did a real good job of uh, is that I, I guess the defense kept trying to sort of point the fingers at you guys as saying, you know, that before the lawyers got involved, none of this was ever thought of. And and then he uh, he used that as sort of a theme in his closing of, uh, you know, turning it around, saying before the, you know, if they just looked at before the doctors had gotten involved and in, in when they made a bad choice. But uh, but weave that theme in. And I like that as well on how he did that. Yeah, that was an interesting defense tactic because it did not play well in their favor right. uh, for exactly what you just said. When when David and I were trying to construct this opening narrative to really create a persuasive story. Uh, David had the idea from all of his work and seeing a bunch of other speakers around the country talk about it to start with when this policy was created. And this policy was created before lawyers were involved, before Esmeralda Tripp was ever treated. It was done well in advance of all that. So it's an interesting choice to say, well, before the lawyers were involved, A, B, and C, when that's the whole theme of the case is before the lawyers were involved, the hospital decided when the safest time to use this medication was. And this doctor, exactly. both these doctors violated. Yeah, and you know, exactly. the, the, uh, the policy, the, the big point on that is that this policy was the result of a very detailed, deliberative uh, uh, effort. And, uh, and, 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 the, and the reason, the reason that's done is so that when, when doctors have to make 
you know, quick split second decisions. They don't have to, to, to worry about making the wrong choice because somebody through a very careful process has already made that decision so that they can just rely on the fact that that was done very carefully, you know, through give and take within the, with experts within the hospital. And that, that was very helpful in terms of rather than, rather than them just deciding what to do on the spur of the moment for this patient on this day, they had a policy and a very specific policy, which is really unusual in, in medical malpractice cases. But it really, I thought, I thought it was very, very important, very help, very helpful. Yeah, and not only that, but the, the, the you all did such a great job on pointing out that there were there were options. It wasn't like it was profile nine or nothing. I mean, they they had three other ways that they normally treated uh, this exact issue with not only Esmeralda but with others that had come in, uh, where they would either stop Coumadin or give vitamin K or uh, give fresh fo- frozen plasma. And you know, when you got these three other options, all of which are relatively low risk, and then you go with the highest risk. Um, uh, medication without having any basis for it. It just really sort of brings right. it home. Yeah, what, what uh, I did in probably the year leading up to the trial before we even knew about the case, and I'm still doing now, is I've been doing a lot of research um, into using triggers in, um, in cases. Uh, triggers are a psychological uh, neuro- neuroscience technique that you say one thing and it makes you think of something else. Um, and so what we did was fresh frozen plasma and vitamin K are both very low risk. They, fresh frozen plasma does have some risks, but vitamin K doesn't. Um, they're safe. And so in the opening statement, when I was talking about those on the slides, they were in green on the slide. FFP was green. Vitamin K was green. When we introduced Profil 9 to the jury, um, we put it in a stop sign on the screen. So it was Profil 9 in a big red octagon, and the Profil 9 was in white, so you could see it, just like it would say stop. And so every time Profil 9 was mentioned in the opening statement, it was in a stop sign. The obvious trigger to that is people are going to say, hey, stop before you give Profil 9. Look at that policy to see when it's appropriate. And so we were trying to create a frame around it that you have to stop and think because this one's dangerous. The other two are green, they're okay. Um, And again, because this is a concept that most people have never dealt with before, so we really wanted to make sure we were pounding it in uh, and making it memorable and persuasive. No, I really like that. I I did want to ask you about something, Brian, in your opening, and I think it's something that every lawyer who, who talks in front of a jury gets worried about, but it looked like during your opening that there may have been one or two technical issues or problems and you handled it very well, but I'm just wondering what were those issues, and and uh, and, uh, and you 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 handled it very very well with the jury. Well, thanks. There are very few things that keep me up at night: uh, my kids and issues just like that in trial. <laughs> when you're when you're younger, you have the dreams that you show up to school naked, and now as a lawyer, you have the dream that you're giving your opening or closing, and the technology is not working. Um, so what happened was. I was using my iPad and had an Apple TV uh, box, so I was doing it wirelessly. And everything was going fine. And then everything just went downhill very quickly. I started having a coughing attack in the middle of it, out of nowhere. Right. And then while I'm speaking, the, the way the courtroom was set up was I'm standing there talking, facing the jury. The projector that's, go, that's connected to the computers is overhead. 
And all I'm seeing is a flashing light and I can't tell, I can't figure out what's going on. My back's to the screen. I don't know what's going on. And I, I see it enough. I turn around and look and my opening, my slides are flashing on and off on the screen. Um, I can't keep them on. So while I'm coughing and dealing with that, I, I continue to talk and I just grabbed the wire off of our council table and plugged hardwired it in and kind of rebooted it as I was going. And um, it was nice because I, I know the listeners can't see me. I, I look pretty young. And um, so I, I feel like some people take sympathy on me because they think I may not be as experienced as I may be. And so I, I got a thumbs up from one of the jurors of like, uh, you're doing okay. Don't worry about it. But it was embarrassing. <laughs> no, that's, that's actually not I me. Mean, I, I always tell people that is, you know, be yourself. And if you make a mistake or if, if there are mistakes, just, you know, go with it. It's human. And uh, I think at the end of the day, jurors want to see that even lawyers are human. We, so yeah, we talk about this, it. we talk about this a good bit with um, people both on the podcast and just in general. And Brian, is there a, you know, because is there a reason that you like to run the technology yourself versus bringing in a trial tech or, or somebody to help you? And if so, can you talk about that a little bit? I think part of it's just being an anal trial lawyer where you want control over everything. Um, <laughs> but I would rather have it be my fault if something goes wrong than have it be someone else's fault. Um, we used, I used Keynote in the opening and real, I mean, the, the technology glitch was something at our table. It was in the connection. The fence had no problem with theirs. Um, but we used TrialPad with all the witnesses and putting up the exhibits. And other than what happened in the opening, there was not a single problem the entire time and it's easy now. It's not like the days of trial director where you have to scan in barcodes and call up images. It's so simple. And if we're doing a cross of, a, of an expert and we can call up an exhibit on the fly and, um, and reference it and highlight it and do it all myself, I'd rather just do that, um, which is easier. Got it. Um, yeah, I was wondering after the, um, well, two things. One, I saw that there was some mention in opening statement about health insurance and that, you know, that's something we wouldn't be able to do in Georgia. And I'm just wondering, does that, how does that come into play? Does the jury get to hear whether or not uh, medical bills are going to be covered by health insurance? In medical malpractice cases, yes. In personal injury cases, no. Um, she was on access, which is our Medicaid. And so the defense wants to bring that in to say, yeah, sure, you have a life care plan of three million, whatever it was, um, but she's covered by access. She doesn't need any money to pay for what she's going to need. And so it, it brings up two interesting kind of inroads there is that one of them is if they bring that up, we can then say, yeah, access is paying for this stuff, but she also has a lien on her for right. a million dollars or whatever it is. If they don't bring it up, then we're not allowed to mention that. And okay. two, access was only covering, I think it was eight hours a day, five days a week. This woman needed 24 hour care, seven days a week, and it was falling on the family to give it to her. And there were some concerns with some of the testimony from the family along the way. And so we actually the first day of trial dropped the claim of the daughter and the son um, because of some testimony from their depositions. 
and they were kind enough to agree and under, they understood. Um, but we, they could then come in and say, hey, we're giving our mom the care that, that health insurance isn't giving. And I think that played an, a good sympathetic role. Yeah, I know. I noticed. Um, I, I can't remember if it was it was discussed in the opening or closing in terms of the materials that we got. But um, I did think that was very effective to say. You know, she's at home. Her it, you and this was tied a little bit into life expectancy. It sounded like, but that she's at home. She's being cared of by her family when they're not able to get this other care, and that they'd been doing a good job. She hadn't had any bed sores in, in four years, which is. Um, for those of us that do that kind of work or have had clients in that situation is pretty impressive, especially when you're not having as much skilled care or assistance as, as she might've needed. Um, related to that, how did you handle helping the jury get to know Esmeralda since she couldn't be there? And even if she couldn't, even if she could be there, she was in a vegetative state and, and couldn't communicate. Yeah. So we, I mentioned in the opening that she obviously won't be, testifying at trial, um, even though that sounds ridiculous to even have to say that, but some people may not understand what a vegetative state is and why isn't she here. Um, And so we put on the daughter and the, we were calling him her husband. And I mean, he's a great guy and he loves her and cares for her, but they were never, he and she were married in a ceremony, but they never filed their marriage certificate with the state. So under the law, they weren't married. So he didn't have a claim. But um, we, they testified about who she was and who she is now. Um, we had some photos of her before all this happened. But really all it took, we had a day in the life video made. And well, we didn't have it. Kevin and Greg had it made before we came in. And when David and I sat down and looked at it, David said, you know, I think that this is just too long. I don't think the jury needs to see all this to get it. And so we, the defense was obviously objecting to using it. And we agreed to only play, I think it was 14 seconds of the video. That's all you need to show someone in a vegetative state who is, can very, she's what we were calling minimally conscious state. She's, she's able to potentially understand some stuff that's going on and respond to a loving voice, but she can't speak. She can't do anything. And 14 seconds was all that was needed for them to get that picture. Wow. Yeah, that's effective. Um, I, I, I did want to ask you about, um, you know, because we see this more and more in cases, especially where there's a brain injury, that they, they brought in a life expectancy expert to essentially say that her life expectancy wasn't going to be that long. How did you uh, address that? And I guess I'm wondering, how did the jury take it? Because I've always found those experts as being very risky from the defense side. Yeah, it, it was funny how it played out because our everyone agreed that she had a decreased life expectancy because of this. Um, the difference was that was part of our claim. She now has a decreased life expectancy and she right. needs to be compensated right. for that. The defense brings in someone saying when he was deposed, his I, I think it was he said she had about another two or three years left. By the time we got to trial... That time had passed. Yeah, so she should already be dead. And here she is, the family's coming in saying, look, she's still minimally conscious, but no bed sores, like you mentioned, no major health problems. They're taking really good care of her. She's still alive. So how can you credibly say that he did two or three years? You were wrong. And he admitted, yeah, look, it's an estimate. 
but she's outlived her life expectancy at this point, basically trying to imply she could just die tomorrow. Right. Um, so you shouldn't have to compensate her for that. Um, I, it obviously didn't work, um, but the problem is that defense attorneys or defense witnesses can get up there and kind of say whatever they want. If the plaintiff overreaches, we feel like we get punished by the jury. Um, I think the jury had made up their minds already at that point. I don't think you were going to convince them otherwise. Um, so it kind of just fell on deaf ears. Yeah. Um, I, I, the other thing I wanted to ask you, so I mentioned at the beginning that um, the jury uh, rendered a $15 million verdict and they found the uh, defendants 80% responsible, uh, but they did find Esmeralda to be, to be 20% responsible. And I'm, I don't know if you had a chance to talk with the jury or do you have an idea of why they came up with that 20% or what um, it did. And I guess it, it, did you all uh, sometimes in, in closing, if we see that we have a, a, the plaintiff who has some responsibility, we just take responsibility and tell the jury to give them a certain percentage. And I didn't know if anything like that happened. Um, no, we, we took the position that she didn't do anything wrong. Uh, the, the two jurors hung around to talk, but they only talked for 10 minutes. They, they, um, they didn't want to talk much longer. Um, so we didn't get to that part. The claim from the defense throughout the trial was Esmeralda gave information that may or may not be true. And the doctors reacted to that. And so she's at fault because if she, she had a story about that she had a seizure disorder and she had had a seizure and drove a car through a fence. This was like 10 years prior or something. And if the doctors weren't told that, they wouldn't have been worried about her having a seizure and falling and hitting her head and bleeding. So that's why they gave the profile nine. Um, same thing with the prior clot. Oh, we found that to not be legally correct or even just correct in the courtroom. Um, but I, I don't know how they got to that number uh, because that's not what the defense didn't suggest a number of percentage of fault and we said zero. So I'm not sure how they got there. Um, in the end, I think it helped us because they, the jury gave, we asked for 15 to 20 million and they gave 15. So they gave us essentially what we asked for. And then they did ding us with the 20%, but that shows that they were really thinking this out. And it wasn't a a verdict that was motivated by anything else. They really did process it. Right. And we talk about that a lot as far as whether apportionment allows juries to compromise on things and maybe reach a, a verdict more easily than if they had to go with, you know, just black and white, all or nothing. Yeah, I mean, we see it all the time in our focus groups that the the, the verdict in this case is unanimous. But that said, we see it all the time in focus groups where it could be seven to one and the one person says, well, I'll come over, but I want some percentage of fault on the plaintiff. I don't know if that's what happened here, uh, but that does happen a lot. And, you know, $12 million dollars, was still the largest verdict of any kind in the state of Arizona that year. So obviously we wanted the full amount, but you can't right. uh, be picky when it comes to that. So Right. Well, uh, I mean, uh, guys, thank you so much. This has been just a great, um, great interview and, and a fantastic job. I, I was just wanting to make sure, is there anything else you want to make sure that our listeners know about the trial or anything you all, you all did during the trial? Um, 
that uh, that we haven't talked about? Um, the only thing I would say, and maybe just to put a pin in it, is just that we spent a lot of time fleshing out the best way to present this case. And I think that's where a lot of lawyers, including us in the past, have gone wrong with trials. It's not that the lawyer isn't a great lawyer, it's not that it's not a good case, but we get caught up in our own uh, brains and in our own thoughts, and we forget that jurors are not lawyers and they don't work on this case for two or three years. And they don't have the attention span that we have for our case. And so we really tried our best to make this as streamlined and, uh, and simple as possible. We experts were on when we crossed 30 minutes and off, we weren't dragging this on and on and on. And I think we developed goodwill. And I think it's a really important lesson for everyone out there to say, have someone consult on your case, not necessarily to help you try, but just consult with the focus group and help you really focus in on the most important issues and abandon the fluff. And the right. goal is that that would uh, produce great results. Yeah, I Ab- guess I Abandon go- the fluff. I like it. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I should go back to the focus groups for a second. Uh, David uh, talked about the concept focus groups. How, how many of those did you all do? And um, what, did you go, uh, I mean, I, you know, did you go past that where you were doing more like of an opening or closing or a clopening type argument and then having the jury deliberate? How, how many times did you focus it? We focused it three times. Um, first as a concept. And then when we got closer to trial, we focused uh, my opening and we did it as, like you said, a clopening. And Kevin gave the defense clopening. Um, and the goal was obviously to see if our themes and our uh, stories were persuasive, but we also wanted to test all of those um, triggers that we had created to see, is this even persuasive and memorable? And based on what they told us, some of it clearly was, and some of it we had to tinker with. Um, But yeah, so we did two uh, organized ones, organized focus groups where we did an opening, closing, and then one concept. All right. Well, um, well, thank you so much for being on with us. I want to remind our listeners that we've been talking with David Winter and Brian Snyder of Snyder and Winter in uh, Tucson and Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, and I should have told everybody at the beginning that you can look up uh, David and Brian at SnyderWinner.com. That's S-N-Y-D-E-R-W-E-N-N-E-R.com. Uh, if you want to learn anything more about them, the case we've been talking about is uh, Esmeralda Trip versus University of Arizona College of Medicine and University Medical Center, um, and it resulted in a $15 million verdict on behalf of Esmeralda Trip. Uh, uh, David and Brian, thank you so much for your time, and uh, and and thank you for uh, um, a, a great interview. Thanks. Thank you all. We appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining, and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials Podcast as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. 
If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.